hope you're having a really good week. My name is Hilary Seabrook and welcome to my podcast, Harmonious World. This podcast is all about me interviewing people who are doing interesting things in music and this week is no exception. I'm delighted to be joined by Munir Nasser, who is the son of the late great bassist Jamil Nasser. What you're listening to now is Munir's version of Cherokee with his quintet featuring Elijah Easton on sax, Aline Johnson on piano, James King Jr. on bass and John Lampkin III on drums. And the reason I'm talking to Munir is because he's got a new album out, which is called A Soldier's Story. And A Soldier's Story is the musical companion of Munir's book, Upright Bass, The Musical Life and Legacy of Jamil Nasser. The book is a musical tribute to Jamil Nasser, who is a bassist that I had actually never heard of. But he played with everybody. The foreword to Upright Bass is written by phenomenal, legendary bassist Ron Carter, who talks about Jamil Nasser's incredible talent describes him as a must-hear bassist, an entrepreneur, long-time partner in the Ahmad Jamal trio. And he finishes with, if you called him using one of these names, he would turn, greet you with a great big smile and a serious handshake. As for me, I called him my friend. And I'm going to be reviewing the book for The Riff magazine, for which I'm associate editor. So I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Munir Nasser as we talk about his own music, but also the music of his father, Jamil Nasser. Hello, hello. Hello. Welcome to Harmonious World. It's a real honour to interview you. Thank you. Thank you, Hilary. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, I always so. like to share information, you know, so I'm 55. I'm from what they call Generation X and the X is the unknown. <laughs> yeah. So we're trying to make what we learn because we are a bridge between the old and new. Right. You know, my generation, we come, we remember no computers, no phones. And so we, we're, we're in both worlds. We have feet in, in each of the different worlds. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm the same. I'm a little bit older than you, but we grew up when, uh, you had a television, but it only had a few channels and you watched yes. it together as a family. Uh, we had a landline telephone, uh, <laughs> right. no computers or anything like that. So, wow. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see the, the difference when they, when the studies are done about how that affected each generation, Yeah, which Absolutely. one was uh, more beneficial. Yeah. Cause it seemed Absolutely. like a lot more great people came out of that old environment where there were less distractions than this new environment that we're in yeah there's so many 500 you talk about three channels i remember that now there's like five or six hundred yeah imagine yeah crazy isn't it crazy yes right so tell me about your book and the music about your dad so you're manir 
Nasser and your yes. dad is Jamil Nasser. Jamil Nasser. Yeah, right. But so, he originally was George Joyner. He changed his name in the 50s. Oh, really? Uh, that's detailed in the book. So his story, is, if you start from there, that's different from Ron Carter. That's different from Wilbur Ware of any other bass player you could name. Because he was one of the pioneers that actually changed his identity. Because as African Americans, they took our names. That's very important point of our history. Absolutely. That we came from Africa with our identity. It was stripped from us. And a few people at that time were willing to reclaim that identity that was stolen. And that came with consequences, you know? Yeah. Because basically, they branded the slaves with their name. And some of us continue to hold on to that brand. And it's hard to respect that when you, you're supposed to be free, but you're still carrying the brand of your former owner. Yeah. And so he gave that name back and became Jamil Nasser. And he said half of his work went out the window in 19. That's in New York, you know, in 1957, wow. 58. He said half his work went out the window just on that decision. Wow. So that's a point of separation. Um, between him and other musicians that came along at the time he did. Right. That's a, that's a fascinating. How old was he when he, when he took that decision? Uh, that he was about 25. Right. Yeah. So young and coming to New York, you know, that was controversial because there was a little friction between the Jews and the, and the Muslims then. Right. And so that was, uh, that was pointed out. I put that in a book. Dizzy Gillespie spoke about that. That's before my father. That's in the 40s. Right. That's before he even came to New York. And so the person that talked to him about Islam, Dries Suleiman, great trumpet player that a lot of people are not familiar with that name. But he was a great composer and an alto saxophonist par excellence. That's a Dries Suleiman. He moved to Denmark in the early 60s. Right. But he's, uh, he's one of the first pioneers of bebop. Mary Lou Williams said he, he could hear Monk's music before Miles or Kenny Durham or any of those cats. That's why he's on the first album, because he could hear that harmony. The other trumpet players were struggling with it, you know. So he's an important person, too. And he changed his name in the 40s. But that's where my history starts, too, because I come into that. He had already changed his name. I'm born June 3rd, 1967, in New York City. I, and so I come in this name you know, second generation. And even in the seventies, there was all kinds of, because now you're African-American, but you're in a different group. So that's a double minority. Could you experience some alienation from your own African-American people and teasing and mockery? See, wow. cause you don't eat pork, you don't go to church. And these are big points of separation. You know, people yeah. that's, that haven't experienced that, it would be hard to explain, but it's a big point of alienation and separation you know, that you have to go through. And so that made me curious. That made me had to, I had to be able to defend what I believed and who I was at a very young age, which necessitated research. So from early on, I was teaching and giving out whatever little information I had. And then my father was taking us out early, you know, as early as 1974, because he was playing with Ahmed Jamal. I was going to the clubs. He was taking us to the concerts, more so concerts than clubs. And then eventually I went to the village gate. I saw Dizzy Gillespie. So I was around this music. I was around the musicians. And it was a powerful exposure, man. When you're a kid and you're exposed to something like that, I mean, you don't have too many choices about what you want to be. It's like the choice has been made. 
yeah. when you're in an environment like that and you see the joy and the power of the music and the people and you feel that and you feel the um the the power of that it's life-changing especially that early yeah and i started playing about 1976 after seeing dizzy gillespie and i i've been playing ever since i never even thought about stopping you know yeah. and so jazz is a powerful music and it's had that kind of um role in my life and i got brothers that play my brother umar he played bass he used to play zade is a master alto saxophonist he he continues to play right and i have others and brothers brothers and sisters but they're not involved in music okay and so maybe i will i'll discuss them another time but for purpose of our discussion i had an older brother umar he played bass and viola and then zade continues to play right so we're continuing that musical uh, legacy and tradition. Okay. And is that why you felt drawn to write the book and then the music around your, your father was to, to acknowledge and pay tribute to your history? Now, Hillary, that's a good question. And I'm glad you asked it because when my father died after playing with Coltrane, I'm oh. a Jamal for 10 years. Anybody you could name Monk for a week. Most books leave that out. It's, I, I captured it. But my father worked with Thelonious Monk in 1972, May of 1972, for six days at the Aqua Lounge in Philly. And Monk said, this cat didn't even ask me nothing about my music. Most people, even Coltrane, <laughs> asked Monk and Johnny Griffin, and they had to do research. And he was able to hear what Monk was playing. Um, but he, we noticed he didn't appear in Downbeat a lot. We knew he could play. We knew he was a I, I could hear that with my ears that he yeah. was worthy of the coverage as was his colleagues like George Coleman, Harold Mabern. And we listened to these guys say, well, how come they're not in the jazz time and downbeat? How come when I read books? I don't see their names. See? Yeah. And so we knew when he passed that he wasn't going to be covered. So we knew we had to do this research um, and put the information out. And he's a storyteller. Anybody that knew my father, if you met him, and you sat down with him, you were going to get a story about jazz, you know. So he was a historian, a teacher. He went on radio. He went on television. It would have been a big surprise if he didn't leave a memoir or any kind of record of his of his experiences and information behind. So we this is a preemptive strike. He died. Getting to my point, Jazz Times didn't cover it. They've covered roadies that cleaned the buses and yeah. set up instruments for Miles Davis that died in their 40s from a drug overdose. They got time in Jazz Times or somebody else. But for some reason, Jazz Times and Downbeat didn't feel like Jamil Nasser was significant enough to note his passing. You see? Yeah. Um, nor did they review the book. I just sent one to Downbeat. We'll see what they're going to do. But I sent them a book. Jazz Times didn't review the book. Why? That's the question. Yeah. And it's an irrelevant question. Now, because I did the book. So, I mean, right. it would be nice for the exposure, but I see I'm not dependent on them to keep his legacy alive. This man sent Lester Young home from Paris to die. Okay? Wow. To die. And they didn't want to give Lester his money. They wanted him to wait. <laughs> they had to almost fight the people physically to get his money to come home and die. Wow. And when you see books... When, when you read other books on Lester Young, you're not going to find that. You can only find that out in this book. Right. What happened with Phineas Newborn? This was a pianist that captured the imagination of Ray Charles, 
of Oscar Peterson, of of Quincy Jones, anybody that ever heard him, right? His story is being told for the first time in print in this book. My father gave interviews on it in New York, but if you weren't listening to the interview and taking capricious notes, you still wouldn't know. And it's too many details to be transmitted orally. Yeah. Some of our history must must be written and documented before so you could understand it. Just like Oscar denied, they went to North Africa in the late 50s, early 60s. He was a formidable pianist, another one um, that worked with Lionel Hampton. And so a lot of people don't know about him. But if you ask Johnny Griffin when he was alive, I met him. He said, man, your father ever teach you about Oscar Denard? This man was a genius. Quincy Jones talked about him. All those guys knew. But when the history was written, he was left out. And there's so many like that. Yeah. And so this book will tell you the, the story of Oscar Denard. You Google his name. I challenge you. You might get a paragraph. But we have his whole story pretty much or part of his story, not his whole story. But most uh, a, a nice portion of it, you know, more than you'll get anywhere else. Let me put it that way in this wow. in this book. And there's a great photo of your dad with the bass on the front. Yes. Lovely yes. photo. Yes. I Thank you. Thank you so much. I wanted it to be colorful because a lot of the jazz books are like have that gloomy, yeah. dark look, smoky. And it looks like something from the past. Yes. Like he could walk off that cover and do a gig today. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. that shirt would be valid to wear today. And that's, I wanted to capture some modernity to say jazz goes on and moves on. It didn't stop back in the fifties. Right. And so, and a lot of the period from 76 on through, it's not covered because they cover historical musicians like Count Basie, like, well, Count Basie lived through the early 80s, but Billie Holiday and Lee Morgan, people they're doing a document, their lifespan didn't extend into the 80s and into the late 70s. And there was a, that was a golden period of jazz, too, that's under-documented. And so we, we captured some of that as well in, in this book. So it's called Upright Bass. It's the musical life and legacy of Jamil Nasser. Yes. Where can people get hold of a copy? You can go on our website, which is jamilsnasser.com. Or you can order it on Amazon. Okay. I cool. prefer website orders, but for overseas, um, probably Amazon <laughs> would yeah. be a more efficient way of ordering this book. Right. Okay. But I have lots of listeners in the States. In fact, I think about half my listeners are in the States. So they'll be, they'll, they need to go to your website. So that's Yes. Fine. So I'll put that link into the show notes so people can just click on it. So then talk to me about the music so the book is called upright bass but the yes uh the album is called a soldier's story why is it called a soldier's story well the book answers that because <laughs> i mean we had to struggle as a family too because in those times my father kind of talked about some of the injustices in the business and there were many and they continue now and people are not discussing the pension fund the Jazz Emergency Fund, a lot of these guys, after they finished having a great career and made the records that we love and enjoy to this day, they didn't have health care. They didn't have dental care. You know, they they would die without burial insurance. They had to do, take um, they had to take up collections to bury a lot of cats. So the Jazz Emergency Fund is something that goes on to this day. And Jazz Injustice, because a lot of clubs won't pay into the pension fund. So when musicians retire, they'll have a nest egg, you know, yeah. there's a way that they could do that. So every time you play and everywhere you play, they take a sm small portion of the earnings and they put it in a pension fund. 
So this is not just a celebration of Jamil Nasser. This is a historical analysis, you know, because we need to analyze history, not just celebrate. There's a lot of work that still needs to be done now. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. So this, is, this is not about celebrating no dead jazz musicians. And that's what Jazz Foundation was originally designed to do that. They wanted to memorialize dead jazz musicians. My father and Jimmy Owens said, no, let's make this organization about preserving the living artists, not celebrating the dead ones. And so even about heroin and, and its role in the, in the business, in the demise of many musicians, this is something that's not discussed that often. In no. this book, it is. And it needs to be discussed because there's lessons that need to be learned, you know. And so you can celebrate history, which you could go and cherry pick for all the feel good stuff. Yeah. Who was the best player and what's your favorite album is. Or you could analyze history. And say, okay, those are good things, but how many of them own their music? How many of them own their publishing? How many of their families are getting the proceeds from their work? See? Then the conversation takes a different turn. It's not as pleasant. So we have to analyze history because in that analysis, we find there's still work to be done. Yeah. Like the fact that Freddie Hubbard died in 2008, a genius of the trumpet, a genius as a composer, and there's not even a faint rumbling about a book on Freddie Hubbard. Yeah. So what hope does anybody have coming down from that level? Even Ron Carter's book, Guinness Book of World Records, most recorded basis, he had to self-publish his book, though. Right. How come an American publisher did not come to the most recorded jazz basis and say, hey, we want to know your story and give him a nice advance and have it so that book is distributed throughout the United States. This is Ron Carter. So it goes down from there, you know, and they don't get covers of books or albums because yeah. they're, they're seen as background. And when you look at the jazz books, it's Count Basie, it's Billie Holiday, it's Miles Davis, it's culture. It's about who's up front, but these guys saw a lot too and they learned a lot and they take their stories to the grave with them. Yeah. And, and those greats, those names that you mentioned, wouldn't have been the way they were without the bass players, the drummers, you know, sitting behind them doing the stuff that needed to be done. And I'm not talking about people like Buddy Rich. I'm talking about the, mm. you know, the 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 side men. Right. Yeah. And see, that's another kind of thing we have to investigate because uh, it's like um, I think we get into personality worship. Yeah. We got to look at that and, and its limitations because then, then it becomes about the person out front and then the supporting cast because they're not on the side. Because the, when I look at a jazz band, the bass is usually behind the person in the front. But we know from a sonic standpoint and from a cultural aesthetic standpoint, everybody's contributing. But when it comes to the business, it's about the leader and who's out front and they get the lion's share of the money. Yeah. And then the side men and the side women get sidelined, they get side wages. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? And they get yeah. pushed to the side And when it comes to historical references. For, for instance, there's a downbeat article out now on three albums that Ahmed Jamal did. And my father's on three of the CDs, but he's not mentioned in the album. I mean, in the article. How does that happen? Yeah. He's on three CDs. I'm talking about the downbeat that's out today. How does that happen that you know, you're talking about album, he's on three CDs, and they have an album, I mean, an article, here I can say album again, 
<laughs> and his name is not mentioned. Now, that could be an editorial problem. Oh, we just forgot. But I've seen it too many times, you know, and I'm not mad about it. I'm just like, that's why we did the book. I'm glad right. we did the book. So I don't really I probably would be mad about it if I didn't do the book. <laughs> yeah. But because I covered it in there and did the pre-interest strike, I could just say it's an observation. Let's put it. It's an interesting observation. And it also confirms the reason why we did this book. We knew they were going to do that. Right. But we didn't know some of the close people were going to do that. We knew some of the people <laughs> that were, you know, just enemies of justice for the musicians and equity for the musicians. They would have a problem yeah. with it. You know, because there was a lot of exploitation musicians that, you know, work for like starvation wages. I mean, it's a sad story and it's not told. Everybody wants to feel good. So a soldier story, getting back to that, is the struggles these guys went through, the struggles we went through. So I put that in music. I wanted to commemorate that in music. So the CD is the musical companion of the book. Right. And anybody that's, that committed themselves to, to this art, but in my father's case, it just wasn't about playing. He kind of put himself out there beyond just playing. You know what I'm saying? And okay. he took a leadership position. He took a lot of controversial positions that, rub people along and it cost him work right you know and that's saying? probably why this legacy of kind of ignoring him is because difficult people mm. you know it's easier to just like let's just whitewash over them and actually whitewash is the right word isn't it you know it's like uh difficult women nina simone it was her birthday yesterday i think um, wow she she was difficult. You know, some of those, some of the interviews that you hear are, are amazing where she, yes. you know, but she, but she's, she's not difficult. She's just opinionated. Well, I'm sorry if that offends you. That a right. woman has an opinion, but yes, you know, get over yourself. Exactly. But, and that same women is drawing them in there, you know, standing room only. Yeah. Yeah. That shows that she has a right to have some kind of opinion. She's certainly putting her power and force in the world. You Absolutely. know, yeah. and earning her right to speak and express yeah. herself. If we tolerate it in a musical context, why can't that be done off stage? Why Absolutely. can't she have the same latitude to express herself off stage as she has on? Exactly. You love it on stage, but when it, when she takes that off stage, yeah. that same power that you see on stage, then it becomes a problem. Yeah, and that's what, that. It sounds like that's the that's the issue with your father that he was you know that people were happy when he was standing at the back playing his bass and that was great and right. he would be recorded and he could be you know appear and on stage and all the rest of it but as soon as he came off stage and started you know talking about stuff then it, it becomes more uncomfortable and people kind of ignore it and then then it's easier to push him to the side and you know what really in in kind of fairly modern times would demonstrate that Dixie Chicks, shut up and sing. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody, they were loved and adored until they took that anti-war position and more than half of their fan base, man, yeah. just yeah. dropped off. I mean, yeah. overnight, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. The same people that loved them yesterday, hated them today, when yeah. they took a controversial stand on that war or what was yeah. considered to be controversial. So that's how the music business is constructed. You, got, you have to go along to get along. Yeah. And if you open your mouth too much, you will not work. That's the that's the consequence. So you have to be prepared for it. But how do you prepare for that? Yeah. For being without and you know what I'm saying? Struggling yeah. to pay bills. That's yeah. still gonna really be vexatious to your spirit, you know. Yeah, sure. And what in his case though, he was on his own. Even people he worked with was like, you know what I mean? 
Yeah. If the promoter, there's times that the promoter just said, "Hey, don't y'all can y'all can have the gig, but he can't." Right. And I've heard that from musicians. So that's a part of the soldier element to soldier through and do what's right, even if um it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. And you have to brave the consequences, which sometimes is less work and less exposure. Yeah. You know, it's the system reward you when you shut your mouth and let them just have their way. Yeah. And and he wasn't willing to do that. So, so that's why we kind of understand. But it's still nevertheless frustrating. We talk about the information age and still and we vacillate between saying the gatekeepers are gone and now we can publish and you can. But it cost me thirteen thousand dollars to produce that book. That wasn't free. Free press. Yeah. Yeah. Where? <laughs> that cost thirteen thousand, and maybe this is the reason. And then the most publishers say, "Jazz books don't sell." Like I hear people talk about notes and tones. I just went to a, a panel discussion. Everybody's like, "Notes and tones by Tales, a classic book." Oh, okay. Um, it came out in seventy-seven, right? Yeah. Do you know that he went to major New York publish publishers, and they turned him down? He had to sell publishers. He had interviews with Monk. With Miles, when he wasn't giving interviews, yeah, they did not care. No. They said, we're not interested. And I'm saying in New York. I didn't say in North Carolina. No. So this is stuff that kind of goes on that people, and really, if you're really honest, they never really push nothing jazz. The music, the books, nothing. Not even no. the publishers. No. You know, because a lot of times they're not, like you take a university publisher, they're not trying to sell a book. They don't have to sell a book. So they could not do an index. As I've seen some of the books, they don't they have a name concordance, no index. So it's not integrated with the digital pool of information. Yeah. So they take liberties. But in a trade publisher, man, I mean, you're going to have an index and all the other elements necessary to make it marketable. I think the university presses, and I'm going to go ahead and say it publicly, they cut corners on these thing, kind of things, particularly the index. That's, I have a couple of books here. I'm not going to name them. By top musicians, they come out of university presses. They don't even have an index. Yeah. So no. that's that's not good. No, no. Well, and so that's what we have going on. So we have this is just one effort. Of, I mean, we got the music. I mean, think yeah. of it. African-Americans, too. They play the music. But we got to start writing, man. That's not enough. Absolutely. It's not enough. And it needs it needs erudite people like you who can stand up and go, well, for start, write the book, but then talk about the book and talk about the background and talk about it. Because I had no idea about your father and I should have done. You know, I know quite a lot about jazz and mm -hmm. I should have done. I should have heard his name before. And, and I, I, his name was not unfamiliar to me, but it wasn't somebody that I knew about. Right, so, right. But now I do. So that's good. So and so that's, it's like you cannot, if you listen to John Coltrane, it's, you cannot overlook his name. He's on like seven of his most important albums. Wow. And uh, in fact, I'm meeting with Mr. Fuji, who was on uh, the John Coltrane documentary. And he came to my father's memorial. He said, look, man, you, your father's on the, one of the only albums where Coltrane plays straight ahead alto. You know what I'm saying? And it's clear. Yeah. It don't sound like it's coming through, you know, fried chicken frying in the background. <laughs> it's a clear <laughs> recording. And he said, that's one of the most important albums in John Coltrane's discography. There's only two of them. And one of them they found a couple of years ago in Japan. But that's out. He's playing more out on that. I'm talking about straight ahead, wow. um, you know, yeah. alto, right. saxophone. Yeah. And so, and then B.B. King's first band. Not the B.B. King we came to know. 
the BB King that was just getting started on Beale wow. Street. And then up from that to a movie with Whitney Houston and Denzel Washington, the preacher's wife, they have a scene in that. And that's just a couple of things, you know, yeah. over over time. In England, especially, he worked there with Al Haig. He recorded uh, oh, wow. Expressly Ellington. We have a book in the Sussex Library because Art Thiemann lives there. Art Thiemann was a saxophone on, saxophonist on this album, Expressly Ellington, recorded in 1978. He's played at, Ron, my father's played at Ronnie Scott's with uh, Monte Alexander on a few occasions. Oh, wow. And so he has a, with Al Haig, there's bootlegs of him playing with Al Haig just around in London. And so they, he has a history there too. And the, the bass he played, that's where he found it. I put all of that in the book. Right. He was there when the Brixton riots happened in 1981. They oh, were really? there in April of 1981. They were playing at Ronnie Scott's. Wow. And so just stuff like that, you know, these, um, there's so many things that they, they recorded the first album in Morocco in 59. They were the first band behind the Iron Curtain in 1960 in Russia and Poland. And they taught them. That's before Benny Goodman. Right. So as people read this book, they'll be fascinated to find he played one of the first electric basses made. And I know people that knew my father for years. I said, man, I never knew he played an electric bass. No, he played one of the first ones. It was a new <laughs> instrument then. There was only like four or five of them being played publicly at that time right. and being recorded. And he had one of them. But if we don't write, yeah. there's a lot of people. He's just one. There's a lot of people that have not been exposed to the public that, that should be. Yeah. But the only way that's going to happen, we have to write. We got writers in the jazz community. People got PhD. Yeah. They're going to have to write. Even the writers of articles, you're going to have to take on a book assignment. Yeah. Like take Freddie Hubbard. I just mentioned him early, right? So I ran into Larry Ridley at the Jazz Educators Network Conference in Orlando. He's 85. Now, if you want to write a book on Freddie Hubbard, I could name two people that grew up with him that are still alive. Both octogenarians, James Spaulding and Larry Ridley. If you don't get to them sometime soon, forget it. Yeah. You might as well, you damn near should forget doing the book because if you don't get that foundational account of how he grew up, in Annapolis, Indiana, Indiana, you're going to be short. And they're here now. Yeah. So if you wait two or three years and they die, and you're gonna, now you're going to be fishing, wishing, and guessing about this man's history. And we have too much of that in jazz writing. Too many people speaking for the musicians that weren't there. Right. They weren't there. They don't know. They're guessing yeah. about a lot of stuff. So while we have these cats here, and about 20 interview people I interviewed for this musician, they're dead. And they have valuable information. Yeah. You hear what I'm saying to you? Yeah, definitely. And so I got to them just in time. Buster Smith, who was very essential to the writing of this book, he died 90 days after our last interview. And we started with him in 2003. Wow. In January. But well, by July, he was dead. The same year. And he wow. had pictures. He remembered what people said, what they were wearing. I mean, details. You know. And so a lot more has to be done. And so um, I'm trying to do my part as much as as much as I can. Brilliant. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me. Wait a minute. We've done already. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> wow. I, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the music. Yes. Because um, that this is your your tribute, your musical kind of tribute to your dad. And yes. To that, those guys. So how did you. How, where did you start? Did you start with the trumpet? Did you start on the keyboard? How did you start writing this stuff? 
You know, it's funny because I got a grant from Montgomery County Arts Council to do this project. And so this, it was really corporate. I said, well, now I have to write some music. Sometimes when you give yourself assignments and deadlines and stuff, it kind of it, it, it gives you the few you need to really get it done. So I just sat down at the piano and said, well, I got to come up with some music. And um, I started playing with some chords and I came up with this vamp. And that's the vamp you hear on the, a soldier story. And then I just I wanted a simple theme that you could hum. I wanted the music to have a pop and a kick to it, something you could pat your foot to with a memorable theme. So I put the military uh, style introduction on there and uh, b very basic melody that you could hum and remember. And then we just solo and tried to, you know, <laughs> explore what we could do in that right. time. But I wanted to have that pop and kick because the jazz I heard coming up, man, when you walked in, let me tell you something. That first tune that would kick you out the door. You might have to leave. Because it might, it might be the fastest, loudest, hardest thing. And these cats would be backstage just say, hey, man, who won the game today? Everybody's all calm. But, man, when they hit that bandstand, it, the first two might be 100 miles. And you just trying to – how can you just walk up on a bandstand and just play that fast? Yeah. Just off the bat like that. So New York was like that. It was real high-intensity kind of music. So I was trying to capture a little of that. Right. Um. Duke in the Whirlwind, my father wrote, a, and I t talk about it in a book, it's called Duke, Duke, uh, The Duke of Winds. And so he was sharing a dressing room with Toots Tillman out in California. He showed it to Phineas Newborn, and Phineas left it in the dressing room. And next thing you know, they heard the song. It was called Bluesette by Toots Tillman. So I wrote this line off the chords <laughs> of um, Bluesette. And I called it Duke in the Whirlwind because my father said, man, if, if I had gotten credit for this tune, it would have changed the whole financial landscape of our lives. Right. So that was my effort to steal it back. And so NASA Blues is just a funky kind of trying to get that Memphis kind of feel, you know. Yeah. The, uh, they used to play a certain kind of flavor of the blues that's specific to Memphis. I tried to capture a little of that in NASA Blues. Tropical Breeze was written by my father. I put a little Caribbean... Intro. It's a kind of a difficult tune to to really play that melody and the chords. You know they, you know they they do some very some interesting chord movement. You know, and some interesting intervals in there that uh, make it a challenge to play. Then Caravan, of course, you know, yeah. kind of speaks to that same journey concept. And so that uh, we did Cherokee fast because that was another thing those guys played fast. Yeah. So I wanted to have a tribute to that kind of tempo. You don't hear tempos like that no. too, too often now, you know. Yeah. But like I was saying, I was trying to demonstrate what I was telling you earlier about how you would come in. You know, sometimes when the first tune people want to warm So they'll play something real moderate, but those guys never do that. They would, they would play something and be like, and it'd be the first <laughs> tune. And so their bandstand was a rough one. You know, that's why a lot of people didn't want to get up there and right. play with them because they'll call a tempo like that. And it's either you sink or you swim. Right. That's it. That's it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, you know, and it's not a lot of time to think and all that kind of stuff. You can forget about that. I mean, when the tempo's like that, there's no thinking. You just got to mm -hmm. lock in and go with it. Yeah. So each of these two, and I explained it when the line of notes. Yeah. have a of a, a underlying concept and reason for for being uh on the on the CD
Yeah. So that's why I made it a companion to the book, just trying to capture some of those moods and grooves and tempos that I heard those guys play. That's amazing. Particularly with George Coleman, because they stuck together. Those guys, Hal Mayburn, George Coleman, Frank, they would they came from Memphis to New York and they still managed to play together. And when they did, they brought all that history with them. That's what made it so powerful. If you ever got a chance to see them to play or and this and they recorded too. Like I would say Manhattan Panorama is a good example of what I'm talking about. The tempos, the blues. Yeah. So I tried to reflect a little of, of that kind of vibe in this recording. Brilliant. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, honestly, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Manir. Yes. It really has. So where where are the jazz clubs there? Can you walk out your home and go to a yeah. A jazz club that's not too far. Yeah. So once a month we have a jazz club in my hometown and there's wow. some amazing people come up. Wow. It's really, really good. And then I, I get sure down. would like to come there one day. Oh, you should. You absolutely should. Yeah. Did I tell you the story? I always tell people that London kidnapped me in 1993. I got stranded there and <laughs> I tried, <laughs> I tried every way I could to get out of there and I end up having to stay there for three weeks. And so in that time, I met Courtney Pine. Oh, wow. I met Gary Crosby. Oh. I met Trevor Walkers. Oh. Uh, and we're still friends today. Tony Coffey. Oh, wow. Uh, Alan Weeks. It was like the who's who of jazz because there was a community there. Yeah. And it needs to be, there have been some documentaries, but there needs to be a, just a book on them because I left the United States and I found the same kind of environment that was here right there in London with those guys at jam sessions. They yeah. were listening to music. They were reading the books yeah. and they were excited and animated yeah. to be involved in the music. Well, and, and so I got those... a special relationship with, with London and the UK. Good. Well, well, you have to come. Yes. You know. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and thank you Likewise. for in touch with me. Thank you. This is just wonderful. This is the Jamil Nasser track, Tropical Breeze, played by his son, Munir, who you've just heard that conversation, which was truly extraordinary. I absolutely loved it. And I came off the call and went straight and bought the book. So I'm now reading through it and it is full, packed, absolutely full of gold nuggets of that story of his father. Do check out the links in the show notes and thank you for joining me once more for Harmonious World. Enjoy a little bit more of this tropical breeze.
Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Harmonious World. My name is Hilary Seabrook and it's a great delight to bring this series of discussions with musicians and composers and writers and all sorts of people to you. Obviously, there's no point in having a podcast if people aren't listening and I'm very grateful to my listeners for doing so. Thanks also to Joe English for composing and performing this new theme tune. So wherever you get your podcast, you can leave a review. You can share this with your friends and family, either as a link or on social media and that sort of thing. I'd be really grateful for that. Don't forget that you can subscribe now. There's a link wherever you get your podcasts. So have a great week and please remember why I started this, which is just to try and make the world a little more harmonious. Thanks for listening to Harmonious World. <laughs>